Well, hey, if you're new, my name is Steve, uh, one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible or that study guide that we gave to you on the way in, why don't you grab it and find Luke chapter 10. We make another turn here this morning as Jesus has been training the disciples and preparing them for what's ahead. We finished last week looking at three significant conversations between Jesus and uh, three people who came up to him and wanted to follow him, two of which who came to him of their own volition, their own desire, and one that Jesus called personally. And what we said last week as Jesus is teaching these disciples, this whole group of people that is following him from the north part of the nation down into the south part of the nation in Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified, we were learning that uh, Jesus is confronting some expectations that we have about discipleship, of things that we hope we'll get out of di discipleship, and Jesus has to teach us um, really what discipleship is all about. What does it mean for us to follow Christ? And we saw three conversations that had three temptations, one about expectations, one about uh, putting off following Jesus until another day, and then a third one that had to do with our emotional life. Uh, that we're no good as a disciple if we're always cranking our neck backwards, looking backwards over our shoulder to how life used to be, things we want to do instead of putting our hand to the plow and going forward. Well, today we move into an expansion of the ministry of Jesus Christ through the sending of a new group of people. Uh, you're going to see something similar in Luke chapter, in the beginning of Luke chapter 10 that you did in the beginning of Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, as Jesus commissions the 12 to go out and do ministry in his name, they return and give a good report. We're going to have a similar group of people here, but it's going to broaden. We're going to have another group of people of 72 who are sent out in Jesus' name. And this is a really important uh, section in the way that we understand discipleship because really all throughout Luke chapter 9, the beginning of Luke chapter 10, we've been meditating on what Jesus has been teaching us about being a disciple. And at this point, uh, our uniform is on, we've got the helmet on, we're in the tunnel, and we're about to experience ministry. And Jesus has been dripping this theme of rejection all the way through Luke chapter 9, uh, all the way up to the end of preparing our hearts and minds uh, as disciples for a world that is hostile to our message. Now, a lot of times when we as Christians step into the world, I don't know if you've ever done this, I know I do this from time to time, I wrestle with uh, thinking about Christianity in the world's terms. A lot of times Jesus will contrast um, the values of the kingdom with the values of the world. And a lot of times we can approach our Christianity presuming that as we are faithful to Christ, we're going to find more popularity, more significance, more influence that will win the Oscar and write the novel and uh, get the, you know, the beachfront property in Aruba. And we can attach all of these expectations to what we think faithfulness looks like. But for the vast majority of us, none of us in here probably, more or less, are going to have a TV show. Right? You may or may not write the next Pulitzer Prize winning novel. You may or may not, probably not, get a Nobel Peace Prize. You may or may not be recognized for your contributions in your career field. You might not ever have a commercial made about you. So if we're Christians and we follow Jesus Christ, the, the one who's been preparing his disciples for rejection, how is it that we can find purpose and meaning in our own pathway with Jesus? What is it that he's called basic, normal, ordinary Christians to do? 
Why is it that Jesus has joined the most significant message in the entire world to people who are relatively unknown to their culture? I'm not trying to discourage you in your personal reputation right now. I'm just trying to tell it like it is. I'm not that popular in our culture. You know that? A lot of times we can feel like nameless, faithless people going about our days and lives and parenting and careers. And the question is, does God have any purpose? Does God have a point? Did he call you just to know him and come to church and sing some songs and make some money and then die? Or does God have something for every single one of us in this room that is perhaps more remarkable than any purpose this world can give you. And that's what Luke chapter 10 is about. So if you wrestle with God, what, what are you doing with my life? Why am I here? What could you possibly do with someone like me? I'm not popular. I'm not influential. I don't have the background. I don't have the degrees that my friends have. I don't really know what you're doing in this situation in life. God, what do you want me to do? then I want you to lean in and consider the things that we're going to see here in Luke chapter 10. All right? Let's pray. Father, we pause for just a minute to confess that uh, our lives need a greater calling upon them. We need a purpose to live for. We need a way to make sense of the ups and downs in life and the frustrations and joys and futures that we all think about. And Father, I pray that your word would come alive in our hands here this morning, that we would see things about you and about your calling on our lives as Christians, as your sons and daughters, that we would see a purpose that far outstrips maybe the, the small hopes and dreams we have for our lives and that we would join our lives to being a part of what you want to accomplish in our lives and in your kingdom during the time that you give us on this earth. So Father, we pray for your grace. We confess that the unfolding of your word gives light and we pray for that here this morning. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles open? Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 10. Look at how Luke starts in chapter 10. He says, after this. Now, the after this is probably a, a thematic way. There, there's no real chronology given to the previous conversations between Jesus and these three people who come up and talk to him. But we know that Jesus is on the move. He's set his face to go to Jerusalem. So sometime after these conversations where Jesus confronts the expectations and the delays and the emotional demands of our hearts, now we're shifting in the story and we're still on the way to Jerusalem, but now Jesus is preparing a group of people who are beyond just the 12. The 12 had been handpicked, hand-selected through a night of prayer, invited into being a part of what the New Testament will call the foundation of the church. But beyond the 12, there are groups of people who follow Jesus, who are still faithful to him, who know him and want to serve him. And it's this next group of people that aren't going to have any names to them. It's this next group of people who are just essentially described as a number and pairs who are about to participate in the very ministry that Jesus calls them to. So look at what Luke says in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. And sent them on ahead of him. 
two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So we have 72 people, 36 pairs, and these people are appointed. That word appointed is not a random word in the Bible. It's used in only one other place in Luke's writings, and it shows up in the book of Acts. It shows up in the book of Acts when the apostles get together and say, we need to round out the number. We lost one because of Judas. We need to pick somebody else, and we need to lay hands and pray for the person that needs to replace Judas. And they pray to the Lord, and they say, Lord, please, you who know, God, you who know the hearts of all men. Show us which one you have, this word right here, you have chosen. So this is not an arbitrary picking. Jesus is intentional in choosing his people who will serve him. So Christians, let me just point this out right as we get started. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus that you have not been called merely to know him and to be in relationship with him, you have been called into mission for him. You have been called to participate in the things that God has planned for you to accomplish on this earth. And in Luke chapter 10 verse 1, we're told that this group of 36 pairs are now exploded out like a dandelion being blown into all the places where Jesus himself is about to go. Now for many of us in this room, you had an encounter and a relationship with somebody who knew Jesus, didn't you? You had a conversation with somebody who introduced you to Jesus. That before Christ came into your life, before you understand who he was, before you asked for forgiveness for your sins, you had someone who knew him who came into your life before Jesus arrived and met you. Well, that's how the story starts. 72 people chosen by Christ, sent into places where he himself was about to go. Now, First they're called and they're appointed to go. But before they go, Jesus gives them some instructions. You see how the word go shows up in verse 3? Okay, good. This is one of those dial tone moments. It's okay, start it up. You can, we're, we're together. So go shows up in verse 3. This is basic Bible study methods. We just skipped a verse, right? So now we're going to look at verse 2. Now before we go, we've got to do something before we go. Go is an imperative command in verse 3. There's another imperative command in verse 2. Watch it. Here we go. Verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, the reason Jesus says this, I think, uh, is, is um, explained to us a little bit more by, what, by where this saying shows up in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, this saying shows up before Jesus sends the 12 out. So I want you to just look at what Matthew tries to get us to see about this statement. The, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Turn back with me to Matthew 9. Right back to your left. Luke, Mark, Matthew. And look at Matthew 9, verse 35. So when you are called into relationship with Jesus and Jesus is about to send you out on mission, there are certain things that you need to think about and certain perspectives that you need to have that Jesus has, right? We don't just go out and do ministry in our name. We go out and minister in Jesus' name, which means we need to take his values and perspectives and thoughts and uh, convictions about ministry and what needs to happen from him so that we can engage in ministry correctly and appropriately. Look at Matthew 
9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now watch this, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what, what is Matthew trying to get us to see? Well, what Matthew is showing us is the very heart of Christ for people, isn't he? He said when Jesus looks out and makes this statement in Matthew, he says, I look out upon these people and they're harassed and they're helpless and they're like sheep without a shepherd. Which means before we step into ministry in Jesus' name, we have to have the heart of Jesus. We have to see people the way Jesus sees people. We need to see people at work the way Jesus sees people at work. We need to see people in our classrooms the way that Jesus sees people in our classrooms. And when you step into those environments, those corporate environments, those relationships that you are in around other people, you need to bring with you the very heart of Christ that looks at people and goes, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So our hearts, as we do ministry in Jesus' name, should first be moved before we go. Amen? We need to have the heart of Christ before we start going and doing ministry in Jesus' name. Now come back to Luke chapter 10. So he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Well, what do we do then? If it's so busy, I'm sorry, if it's so overwhelmingly, uh, let me say it a different way. That's a bad adverb to start that sentence. Um, if the opportunities are so great, we probably should get out there faster. Don't you expect this text to move a lot faster than it does? The harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. Get on your backpack, get on your work gloves, get on your rake, get your shovel, get your scythe, get your thing, get out there, go. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus tells them, I have the same heart for people that you need to have, therefore you need to do what? What's the word? Pray. Therefore, because the harvest is so plentiful, because there is such great spiritual opportunity, because you have an opportunity to make kingdom impact in your life, work, family, parenting, therefore, pray. Pray how? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You cannot, let me tell you this in ministry, you cannot care for people unless you pray for people. You cannot. The longer I am in ministry, I am the most subjectively weak and most emotionally engaged when I pray for people. That's the reality. Because if there is real, true spiritual opportunity out there, do you think you can accomplish spiritual fruit in your own strength and power? Do you think we just need a fancy vision statement? There's so much opportunity out there. We need a strong strategy, a good vision statement. We need to have a fundraising campaign. We need to get some strategic thinkers together on a whiteboard, because who doesn't love a good whiteboard session? And we need to make plans. We need to get organized. But Jesus says there is so much spiritual opportunity and you are so unable that you need to hit your knees before you go and you do anything. You need to pray like crazy because there's an opportunity. Who are we praying for? 
Who are we praying to? We're praying to the Lord of the harvest, the one who has all authority in every place and every time to create spiritual fruit as a result of the faithfulness of his people. So if we have spiritual opportunity, before we say anything, before we go and do anything, we pray. We say, God, there are opportunities out there that I am not equipped for. There are opportunities out there where I don't know the right thing to say. God, there are opportunities out there and you're doing work in people's hearts and I believe that is true, but I have no idea what to do, how to accomplish it. I hit my knees in subjective uh, weakness before I stand up and proceed to say anything in your name. So God, you've got to do it. You're the Lord of this harvest. And notice what he tells them to pray for. In, Luke, in Matthew, when Jesus tells them to pray for that, he immediately sends the disciples. They go like, oh God, please send someone. And Jesus goes, there's one. It's like Jesus tricks them. Oh God, send a missionary to Beirut. And Jesus is like packing their bag already. But here Jesus tells the 72, before you go, before you leave, pray, because we need more people involved in the harvest. Isn't that interesting? You'd think Jesus would say go, but Jesus says pray for more. The opportunities are so great. The opportunities are so significant that we need more people involved in this progress. For you to inherit the calling of Christ upon this life is to inherit a calling to pray for more people. You could take, I want you to think about this, just silently pray for the person next to you that they might have an impact in the places where God calls them. Pray right now for that person that you, that is sitting next to you, shoulder to shoulder, who's going to have conversations with people that you may never see, you may never meet. And say, God, use them in the harvest. Pray for your kids that God might use them in the harvest. Pray for your grandkids that God might use them in the harvest. Pray for more. Pray for more opportunities for people to understand that Jesus loves them, has a calling upon their life, and now is going to use them in the harvest. What should we be doing? We should be praying for more people who get used in the harvest. Do you think that's a prayer God wants us, wants us to pray? Do you think that's a prayer God wants to answer? Amen, he wants to answer that. He wants more people to be used to participate in something that they cannot do so that God would get glory and they would get joy. How many people? More people. Pray for how many? Lots more. How many people need to go to work? Lots more people need to go to work. The opportunity is that great. See, a lot of people get nervous in the church that like there isn't spiritual opportunity out there. You have no idea what God is doing in the hearts and minds of people that you bump into every single day. You have no idea how God is preparing their hearts, working in their lives, organizing circumstances to make them come to a point where they go, I need God and I don't know how to find him. And here you come to work. Hello, God has called me to be a part of the kingdom harvest. Can I tell you about Jesus? And they go, who? And they go, let me tell you about Jesus. Pray for more. Now, here's your two commands. Your second command. Your second command's here in verse 3. What do you got to do in verse 3? Here it is. Ready? You already read it. No. What do you got to do? Go. Two temptations that we just found in these first two verses. You know what number one is? Never pray. Never pray for anyone. Never pray for spiritual opportunities. Never pray for spiritual fruit. Never pray to be a part of what God is doing in the lives of the men and women who are around in your life. Never pray for your kids. Never pray that your kids have opportunities to share about Jesus. Never pray. Don't do that. Get planning. Get strategy. Get organized. But don't pray. The other temptation in this passage is not going. It's going, I'm, yeah, somebody should go, but I'm going to pray. Because we've got 
you know, AC in here. Somebody should go. I'll pray for the people who go. But I'm never going to participate in actual ministry in Jesus' name. So on one hand, you have people who will try to do ministry in their own strength who will never pray. On the other hand, you have people who are reticent to do anything other than just sit. But we need both, amen? We got to pray, we got to go. We got both hands, both sides are working. Go your way. Behold. Now don't you think the illustration Jesus has used, the metaphor Jesus has used is a labor in the field metaphor, right? Behold. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Let's get more laborers. I expect him to continue that metaphor, don't you? I expect work gloves. I expect, you know, uh, whatever you use to harvest, the thing and the chip, 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 all that. I expect all of that to be a part of what Jesus says next. But that's not what he says. He totally changes the illustration. Because everybody at this point is, is getting ready. They've got the boots, they've got the jeans, they've got the leather, they've got the strength, they've got the ready. We're going to go and harvest, we're going to get some work done. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. <laughs> what? I was ready to go to work. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm sending you out and it's dangerous out there. I'm sending, there's not one place that I've ever found as I've searched the internet far and wide this week where lambs are given self-defense classes. Which means Jesus calls us sheep. Jesus calls us dependent. Jesus calls us insufficient to the task. Jesus calls us to go out into places where there is voracious appetites to seek, kill, and destroy the people of God. Are you ready? Jesus recognizes that ministry is a dangerous calling. Because the success of ministry as these people go out is going to be profoundly dependent not again on their own personal ability, wisdom, and insight. It's going to be dependent on their willingness to stay near to the shepherd. How are sheep protected from wolves? They stay near the shepherd. How are sheep given security? They they stay near the shepherd. They're going out into an incredibly dangerous context. And they would be brisket if not for the shepherd. Amen to brisket. Mm. Lord. Go your way. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. There's dangerous in this calling. You're not safe merely because you're prayed up. You're not safe merely because you go. You're safe because you're with the shepherd. You're safe because you are under the authority of the Lord of the harvest. You're safe because you stay near to Jesus in this calling. Verse 4. Verse 4 gives us an echo of what we've already seen in the lives of the 12 disciples who were called. Look at verse 4 with me. Carry no money bag. Leave your wallet at home. No knapsack. A knapsack was typically used by wandering preachers or teachers at the time. And if you think uh, it was essentially a sign that they were self-sufficient and independent individuals. So Jesus says, don't go get the REI backpack and put it on and go out and do ministry. Because you aren't sufficient in and of yourselves. You're not meant to be independent, wandering, traveling preachers. It's interesting that both in Luke 9 and in Luke 10, the people who go out and do ministry in Jesus' name are just like sheep among wolves because they are totally dependent. They're dependent upon God's provision. They're dependent upon his protection. They're dependent upon the provision and the generosity of other people. They're dependent every single day in doing the thing that Jesus has called them to do. They're right at the edge of being totally um, 
insufficient to the task if it weren't for God sustaining them step by step and day by day. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. No Swiss army knife, no sterno, no tent, no water filtration system, no chapstick, don't bring your wallet, leave your phone and your charger at home. Don't wear an extra pair of shoes. Don't even take time to talk to people at the gas station. You are on a mission. You are called by the Lord of the harvest into the places that he himself is about to go. There should be no ostentation about this ministry. There should be not people who go out and look like they have it all together. The people that go out in Jesus' name should be ready to say, I'm not sure where I left my keys. Can I stay with you? That's how seemingly unprepared these people look. How dependent they are on God going ahead of them and providing for them in ministry. Now, now we finally get to the ministry. We've had four verses of preparation. You see that? You got to be called by Jesus. You got to know Jesus. You got to be prayed up before you step into the opportunities that he's preparing for you. You got to be ready and willing to go. You got to be even so ready to go that you look a little bit unprepared and like you don't have everything together. Now, let's look at how ministry happens for these 72. Verse 5. What you're going to find from 5 to about 16 is a whole description of how this ministry looks. So we've dealt with their preparation. And now we've dealt with them walking out the door and headed toward, headed into these towns, into these homes, into these relationships and cities. Look at verse 5 is where our first one, our first context is introduced to us. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. Now, peace in Luke has been a consistent uh, echo throughout the book. It, it started the book with the angels who have come and sang to the shepherds and say, peace on earth. It's come from the mouth of Gabriel who has spoken to Zechariah and to Mary to say, do not fear. And these disciples, as they step into ministry in Jesus' name, encounter people on the road, encounter people in the home, and what characterizes the whole of their message is that you can have peace with God. That is stunning. We have disciples who are launched out in Jesus' name, called by him, equipped, prepared, dependent on any ministry success as a result of God's provision and protection for them. And they have the audacity to walk into new relationships and new places and say, we are bearers of a message that can put you and God's relationship back together. That is incredibly good news. It sums up the entire ambition of the preaching of the gospel. The entire ambition of the New Testament confession is that your relationship with God can move from one of enmity and hatred and brokenness into holistic peace. It's a Hebrew word called shalom, which essentially means God with you. These people have the audacity to say that you and God can be right. Now it doesn't stop there. Their preaching goes out like radar. Look at verse 6. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. I, this is incredible. Let me, church, let me tell you, you, if you know the gospel and know how to share the gospel, you have 
authority under heaven to walk up to somebody and to say, here's the gospel. Here's the way that you can be made right with God and know for certain that you will be with him for eternity in eternal joy, life, peace, and bliss. The problem between you and God is that your sin has severed the relationship with God, that you have fallen short of perfection. And this person's listening to you, yes, okay, okay, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, well, neither of us are perfect. And these disciples walk into this environment and are able to tell them that there's a way that you can be made right with God because by works of the law and the things that you've been trying, the work that you've been putting in to be made right with God are totally insufficient and God counts them as offensive to himself. But there's somebody that God has sent. There's somebody who is willing to take the penalty for every sin and thought and word and deed that you've committed against the God of heaven and earth. And that sin can be taken away and washed away and you can walk the rest of your life and into eternity confident of your justification and right standing with him that is so secure that Jesus died, was buried, raised, and ascended to confirm that your life is safe in his hands for all eternity. And you, in your heart and in your life and in this relationship with God, can move from disordered loves into peace and confidence and safety and security. So when that message goes out and these disciples walk into these homes, a son of peace whose heart God has prepared hears that message and it's like a dog whistle. I wish I had one. It'd be a great illustration right now. Anybody bring a dog? It would have been bad if you brought a dog. But you can't hear that. It's like the dog whistle for dogs. I, don't, I just came up with that right now. If that doesn't work, you get the idea. It's like sonar. The message goes out, ping, and it comes back, and we go, there's a son of peace. It's Luke's way of saying it's someone who's receptive to the message of salvation. And guys, you have no idea the hearts that are in our city and in the context you are in. You have no idea the opportunities we have to be able to share the truth of Jesus Christ and to watch God do things in people that we can't do. And it's not just, listen, it's not just here on Sunday. It's from Sunday at 1 o'clock until Saturday night at 12 p.m. when you go to bed and you're done watching SNL. I don't watch SNL. That's fine. You don't have to. You can go to bed at nine. My point is, you've got opportunity. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for opportunity because if there's a son of peace there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it returns to you. Now look at more character qualities in verse seven. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. If you remember from Luke chapter nine, we said these people aren't going from house to house to house to house to figure out what are they making over there? Burgers, what are they making over there? Tacos, what are they having over there? Lobster, well, that's where I'm going. You stay in the same house, which means, disciples, you're dependent on the hospitality of the people who receive the message that you bring. Don't remain in the same house, eating, drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Now, in context, that's not a Bentley and Laker tickets. Do you know what it is? It's food and shelter and safety in the midst of faithfulness to Jesus' command. Because Jesus will always care for his disciples and their needs. You align your life with the purposes of Jesus Christ. You choose to make your life about being faithful to Jesus. Jesus will blow your mind in the ways that he will provide for your needs. 
Because you will get exposed. You're like sheep among the wolves. You'll be exposed. You will, you will feel insecure. You'll feel unsafe. But you will watch God provide in ways that you would never see him provide if you weren't committing yourself to his purposes. So here are these disciples uh, saying, Jesus is saying the laborers is deserving his wages. I'll provide for you. Don't go from house to house. Look at verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Two times he talks about eating. Amen to eating? Why do these disciples, what are they worried about? We ate in the morning. I don't know what's going to happen in the afternoon. Jesus says, I'm going to take care of your three square meals. You be dependent upon the generosity of the people who respond to the fact that they can have peace with God. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You see, the disciples have the right and the authority to explain what is happening in the hearts and minds of people as they respond to the gospel. We have, Christians, the audacity to confess to people that they can be made right with God. You have that authority. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe there's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved? Do you believe that uh, he took your sins on the cross, died in your place? I do. Then you have peace with God. Period. And the disciples say, the kingdom of God is drawn near to you. Heal the sick, listen to the preaching of the gospel, receive the peace of God. That's what it means to have a taste of God's kingdom. So that the kingdom of God comes near and always, all through the book of Luke up to this point, it's always doing good to people. When Jesus arrives and he heals and he teaches and he takes the outsider and brings them close and he ministers to people, the people who are fearful and don't know if he cares about them, he constantly does people good. So however our church preaches the gospel going out, don't forget that when the kingdom of God draws near, it brings peace, it brings health, it brings wholeness, it brings life. And these disciples say the kingdom of God has come near to you. But there's another side to it, isn't there? It's not all good news when the gospel is preached. Look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not, re and they do not receive you, go into its streets well, that's interesting, isn't it? This is about to be a public declaration of the rejection of the gospel. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. It's a way of saying, it shows up in Acts chapter 13 with Paul and Barnabas on their way to Iconium when the Jews try to stir up people against them. The Gentiles are worshiping God because God is bringing people who are outside the ethnic people of the Jews into his kingdom and the Jews are mad about it. And the Jews get so riled up and so frustrated and so antagonistic toward Paul and Barnabas that they wipe the dust of their feet off and they leave the city as a way to say, we have nothing in common with each other. It's a testimony. Look at what it says. Even the dust of our town clings to our feet. We wipe off against you. Nevertheless, here's what you say. Know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. But if you contrast it with verse 9, it has not come near to you. That you've rejected the message of the gospel. Now the tension in this passage shows up in verse 12. It's a surprising verse. It's probably the most surprising verse in this entire passage. Look at verse 12 with me. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. More, more bearable for Sodom? 
Sodom, the, the city with sexual perversion. Sodom, the city that had fire rain down from heaven. Sodom, the place that Abraham prayed that we might find ten righteous people in it so that God could spare the city. He couldn't find him. Sin and angels could, took out Lot and his two daughters and destroyed the city, turned it into a parking lot. That's Sodom? You mean on the day of judgment, there are going to be varying levels of judgment, which is what we learned from this and what we learned from the end of the Bible and the book of Revelation, where the books are open and men are judged according to what they have done. Jesus takes us to that judgment day and says, in this nameless, faceless town that you are about to go, and I am about to send nameless and faceless missionaries with the message of Jesus Christ and peace with God in his name. That there is coming a day when the men of Sodom will rise up and get a lighter judgment than these people in these little bitty towns in Israel. That is stunning. That should floor you. You should be falling out of your pew. Because the question is why? Why is it that the men of Sodom will get a lighter judgment than this small, unassuming little town that has wandering missionaries go through it. And the answer to that question really is in how much revelation God has given. Hebrews puts it like this. Long ago and at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Why is this judgment for these small unnamed towns more severe than the nation of judgment than the city of Sodom? It's because they had greater revelation. They had the Messiah of God come to them. They had the message of salvation in Jesus' name, who is God's ultimate and final revelation. Speak to them. They had the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. Teach them, talk to them, preach to them. And they passively let him walk by. They ignored his missionaries. Now, while that might be surprising to the disciples, Jesus shows you. Let me tell you about it in my own experience. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. You know, Chorazin is, is we have no record of Jesus doing any ministry in Chorazin. None. We know nothing about it. We know sufficiently that it's probably in the northern area of the nation of Israel. Perhaps it's near Bethsaida, which we know very little of too. We only have one recorded miracle of Jesus and Bethsaida, of Jesus healing a man in stages, healing his blindness twice. It's the place where Philip was brought up, Philip's hometown. Jesus says the same thing about Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for the, the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were Old Testament commercial mega centers. They were the New York cities. Massive economic prosperity. They're like the Ninevehs. Significant cities on the map. And Jesus contrasts cities that are relatively unknown with cities that everybody would know about. Ezekiel, Joel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all speak to, court, to Tyre and Sidon. They're popular, they're powerful, they're significant cities of the day. And Jesus contrasts well-known, unknown. Sodom, known for its wickedness, unnamed town where a couple of missionaries show up and just talk about Jesus for a little bit. It will be more, verse 14, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? You shall be brought down to Hades. These small towns, Chorazin and Bethsaida, had the most significant revelation God could give in the person and work of Jesus. They had his miracles, they had his mighty works, they had his healings, they had his preaching. They had everything that they could get in terms of revelation. And they still silently just folded their arms and let him walk by. See, the remarkable thing about this passage is not that these cities are so wicked. The remarkable thing about these cities is that they're just so passive. They're just so apathetic concerning the message. See, there's something remarkable the fact that Jesus is willing to send out 72 nameless, faceless individuals with a message that will change their eternity. Because in many ways, that's how the gospel works in our world. It's unimpressive. It feels insignificant. So when we do the, the simple, faithful work of sharing the gospel where we are, with the people we know and the opportunities that we have, we actually participate in the most significant ministry opportunity there is in the universe of helping to shape people's eternity. Of sharing a very simple message that all of us as Christians can share in 30 seconds and watching God do remarkable things to bring people to himself, to heal hearts, to give peace, to give life, to restore that relationship. Homes, towns, major metropolitan areas in every context. Did you watch that? You watch how this went? Homes, towns, streets, cities. Look at how the text closes, verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. Do you have any one in your life right now who hasn't heard the gospel? Do you encounter any people in your day-to-day, in your workplace, in the opportunities you have, in the business relationships you have, in the people you connect with, the clients you have, the patients you serve, the people you work with? I mean, I'm still praying for AJ. I've almost got him saved. (laughs) Like any day now, any, it's going to fall. He's going to have peace with God. Look at this. Look at what Jesus says to you. Look at what Jesus says to us. The one who hears you, hears me. Don't ever think that you have no participation in what God is doing on this planet. Because if you have the truth of who Jesus is, if you have the message of his salvation and life-giving peace, when you share that, whether you're just wearing... Birkenstocks and can't find your wallet and don't know where your keys are and you bump into somebody at the gas station and you have an opportunity to talk to them about Christ. They're hearing Christ. They're hearing the message of salvation that can write their eternity. So Jesus says, don't hold back. Don't step back from the opportunities you have because the person who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me. Why do we take rejection so hard? Because we take it personally. We think they've rejected us. And Jesus said, they've rejected you. They've rejected me. They've rejected the the king of the universe, the Lord of the harvest, the one who is able to bring life and peace to them. And they passively roll their eyes or put their hands in their pockets or ignore what you have to say or just distance themselves from you. They're continuing to refuse to receive the hope of salvation. And the one who rejects me 
rejects him who sent me. They ultimately reject God. Church, Christians, you carry with you the message of salvation. You have the message of life and peace with God. You have the chance and the opportunity and the invitation to speak of who Jesus is and what he has done, to pray like crazy in his name for opportunities that he might give you. And I guarantee you, you will have opportunities today, next week, next month, wherever they are, if you are ready to be able to speak about Jesus and who he is, God will prepare those hearts in advance and give you the opportunity to preach in his name. Because God has given revelation to us in Jesus Christ that uh, is the best that he can give. This is the best, it's the ace in the deck. It's the best that he can give. So when we preach Christ and we talk about Christ, there's, there's no further proof of his love than we have than in Jesus Christ. No greater understanding of the character of God than, than what we look at in Jesus Christ. No more seriousness about sin than we see in the fact that Jesus has to be crucified to bring people to God. No greater confidence in his redemption and the fact that God has accepted his sacrifice and received him into heaven as a testimony that those who put their faith in him can be whole and restored and reconciled and at peace with God. That's the message we have. And though you might feel like a nameless, faceless individual going around wherever you're going to go in this city, in reality, you are called by Jesus himself to participate in the mission of salvation, to participate in speaking of who he is and watching him do work in people's lives. Amen? So, Father, we pause and confess our need. We pray. We pray, pray, Father, that you would send out laborers into our harvest. We pray that in our hearts right now, we'd raise our hands. We pray right now that you would equip the people in this room to be able to share the gospel, to be bold, to be prepared, to not be dependent on themselves or their, articulate, uh, their way to articulate deep theological things, but they'd be dependent upon you, the shepherd who leads your sheep out to accomplish spiritual fruit in the minds and hearts of people. That even this week, we would have opportunities to share the gospel of Christ with people your, whose hearts that you have prepared. So Father, we pray against self-sufficiency. We confess that we're dependent on you. We pray that you would give life and peace to people, not as a result of uh, our wisdom, but as a result of the wisdom of God that has been revealed in Christ Jesus. That you do things that we cannot do, that you would get glory, that we would get joy, that you would give us purpose in our lives. That even today, for those who are in this room who struggle with what you're doing and where you're at, that you would refine their perspective on their life and invite them into the greatest adventure of being used by you in someone else's life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.